It is my great joy to open up the Word of God again to you this morning, and I would encourage you to take the infallible record of divine revelation and turn to Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 26, as we continue to make our way through this wonderful testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and His sovereign kingship over all. This morning, we come to a text that, quite frankly, doesn't preach very well, in that it's hard to preach about the betrayal of Jesus. Certainly, it's easy to rightly divide this text, but to somehow make it applicable to your lives may be a bit of a challenge, and so... I just pray that the Spirit of God will help us all in that regard. But this morning I speak to you about the traitorous, I should say the treacherous traitor. Try saying that fast three times. The treacherous traitor. Let me give you the context again here. By now, the Lord Jesus Christ is literally hours from the cross. According to the Word of God, he said that his soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. He has been sweating literally drops of blood in the agonies of Gethsemane in three distinct periods of agonizing prayer, communing with his Father, seeking comfort, seeking strength as he prepares for the cross. And finally, with a supernatural resolve, He goes out to meet the enemy head on. And he says in verse 45, Behold, the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Arise, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. And this brings us to our text this morning, beginning in verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up, accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? At that time, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this 
has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. It's in the middle of the night, frankly, in the early morning hours of our Savior's crucifixion. And here the Holy Spirit reveals to us a stunning scene that not only records the actual history of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, but really offers us an, an analog of rebellion and defection that has played out in every era of redemptive history throughout the history of the world. As you think about it, there are really only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who hate the truth of the gospel of Christ and those who have been transformed by it. Both of these groups are represented in this scene along with two representatives from each group. Therefore, I have divided this particular text into four different categories, two different groups with two different representatives. The first group is the, what I would call the maniacal mob, and they are represented by, secondly, a treacherous traitor. And then thirdly, we will also see the disloyal disciples represented by a demented disciple. First, I draw your attention to this maniacal mob. And as I do so, I want to remind you that down through history, we observe the same attitudes and the same dynamics found in these two categories of people with their respective representatives being played out over and over and over again. And this morning we will examine them all and consider some of the modern day equivalents. The maniacal mob in verse 47, while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a great multitude with swords and clubs from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now, again, here we have in the middle of the night, Jesus and his eleven disciples all on the outside of Jerusalem. They were away from the city of Jerusalem, across the Cadrone Valley, up on the Mount of Olives. And this was important for his arrest because the leaders knew that if they arrested him in Jerusalem, there may be some people that were still favorably disposed to Jesus, and it could cause some kind of an insurrection. Because many of them knew that he was a miracle worker and maybe he was what he claimed to be, namely their Messiah. So this was a propitious time for them to arrest Jesus. All of the conditions were favorable. A nice, quiet place away from the city, up in a garden area. No one's around in the middle of the night. And, of course, G Judas now has successfully negotiated a fee for his betrayal with the chief priests. We read about that in Luke 22. And it's interesting that John's gospel and Mark's gospel both reveal that 
not only were the chief priests involved with this whole thing, but even the perpetual enemies of one another, the Sadducees, the entire Sanhedrin, as well as the Pharisees. You see, they had all come together, galvanized by their hatred of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so all of them have joined in this mob, joined in on the subterfuge. But obviously, many of them were afraid of Jesus because you think about it. They had witnessed his miracles and they had been silenced there in the temple by his unmatched brilliance, his, his omniscience. And they were, of course, wary of the multitude. So they were afraid of Jesus. Moreover, I would submit to you, and we'll understand this more when we come to our study of Jesus on the cross, but Jesus was physically intimidating. He was the strongest, most physically fit human being to ever walk the planet. He was a perfect specimen of unfallen humanness. In fact, his body was utterly unaffected by the destructive forces of sin. And they had seen him take a whip and go in and drive out many, many people in the temple. And all of the temple guards stood back, afraid to do anything, afraid to stand up against him, terrified to take him on. And his physical as well as mental prowess was something that was literally alien to those who had had any dealings with him. In fact, in John chapter 7, we read that the temple police were ordered to seize Jesus and they failed. And when they were asked, well, why didn't you get him? In verse 46, they said, never did a man speak the way this man speaks. Now, no doubt the Roman soldiers would have been considered a welcomed ally to this mob because they were, for the most part, indifferent to all of this religious superstitious stuff that was going on with Jesus and the Messiah and all of this type of thing. So these wicked religionists now had to be very careful in apprehending Jesus, but they were glad to have the Romans with them. So they amassed a small army literally to go after Jesus and 11 disciples. And I have to laugh at this none of which were considered to be great gladiators, none of them with a reputation of being violent. Instead, twelve men in a garden, eleven of them asleep and one praying. So the text goes on to describe the multitude in verse 47, a great multitude with swords and clubs. Luke's gospel helps us see more of this in Luke 22, verse 52. We understand that the, the mob included officers of the temple. These were the temple police that had limited powers that Rome had given them to be able to police the people in and around the, the, the temple area. And of course, at this time of the year, there were hundreds of thousands of worshipers there at the Passover season. And many of these temple police carried what would be tantamount to billy clubs. And some of them were armed with swords and even spears. 
And John's gospel tells us in John chapter 18, verse three, that there was also a cohort of Roman soldiers. They would have been from Fort Antonia there in Jerusalem. And a cohort cohort would exit would be compiled of around 600 men. And again, it was necessary for Rome to be involved because this was an arrest that was being made with the possibility of one being sentenced to death. And so the laws required Rome to be involved with this. And of course, again, the Jewish leaders needed to protect themselves from any potential Jewish insurrection. And if the people did get upset with them later on, they'd be able to say, oh, no, 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 wait a minute. Uh, This Jesus, he was a traitor to Rome. And so Rome was the one involved, not us. So this is the the dynamics that's going on here in the minds of these wicked people. As we add up all of the numbers from the various Gospels, we discover that this mob would have been made up of about a thousand men. Hell bent on getting their hands on Jesus. And certainly there would have been other zealots, other people. You know how people love to be kind of a part of, you know, a crowd, especially if you get to load your shotgun and go after somebody. We see that in our country. And so I'm sure this was going on there. And when I think of the, as I call it, the maniacal mob, I have to think of the mentality of crowds. American statesman Alexander Hamilton once said, quote, the more numerous an assembly may be of whatever characters composed, the greater is known to be the ascendancy of passion over reason, end quote. Sin is a fascinating phenomenon. One sinner alone can be a problem, but not a great problem. But if you take many sinners and you put them together, hundreds upon hundreds, then suddenly their wickedness is compounded exponentially. When you study mob psychology, you will quickly find, in essence, that members of a crowd will tend to ignore their conscience. And they will end up doing things they would normally not do as an individual. Normally, they would not do some of the immoral and even irrational and illegal things that they would do when they're together. When they're alone, they would do things very differently and think very differently. You even see that when somebody wins a national championship and all of a sudden crowds get together and they start burning things and flipping over cars. It's just crazy. And so you can see how sin can come together and almost form a monstrous organism. And no doubt this was what was going on in this scene. It's amazing as you think about it. A mob is able to somehow assimilate irrational goals. And collectively they turn it into a mass which takes on its own identity. Again, like its own organism. And suddenly the group, not the individual, ends up committing acts of insanity, allowing the individuals to somehow defer the blame upon something other or someone else than themselves. Sinners love a mob because it gives them permission to ignore what's left of their conscience. 
It gives them permission to somehow unleash all their pent up wickedness upon some common scapegoat, whether it is real or perceived. You need look no further than Nazi Germany to see the dynamics of all of this. The Nazis blamed their weak economy on the Jews. They stirred up all of the masses of the people and collectively and irrationally they unleashed their fury against the Jews and as a result you have the Holocaust, which frankly is nothing more than another example of what Satan was up to on that night of Jesus' betrayal. We see this type of dynamic with wicked dictators and politicians. They're masters at this. They blitz the public with deceptive propaganda. Vote for me and I will rescue from those mean people over here. And then naive people all get together and they call for some demonstration and they'll cram thousands of people into a room or many times they'll just amass them through the media and some charismatic spokesman will vilify whoever the public enemy is and incite the people to violence or to act in some irrational way, sometimes voting for a certain person or whatever, and the people do it. By the way, again, we see a variation of this all the time in American politics, especially in an election year. Well, this is what the Jewish leaders did with their little army. They created a maniacal mob here, one that would grow exponentially in numbers and in rage as the hours went by until finally thousands of people were calling for the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, granted, many of the men in this group had to be there because they were under orders to be there. But there had to be something more, as I think about it, something more strong than than just the orders that were given to them. There had to be some deceptive manipulation going on to persuade these men to go after 12 peaceful men in a garden in the middle of the night, men that were well known for their peacefulness and their good needs, and also to go after this man named Jesus who was well known in the region. He had cured virtually all of the disease in Palestine. And now we're going to go after this guy? We're going to arrest him? A man who was also famous for his supernatural abilities, even to the point of raising people from the dead. Now that would give any soldier cause for concern. And perhaps many of them thought in the backs of their minds that perhaps he is who he says he is. Maybe he is the Son of God. But indicative of maniacal masses they, that, that hate the Lord Jesus Christ to this day, they grab their clubs, they grab their swords, and off they go, marching off to capture this innocent Son of God who came to be the sacrifice for their sins and ours. Now, to show you the power of deception and the level of their their, their collective insanity. I find it very interesting in John's Gospel, in John 18, according to this text, we see that after Judas's kiss of betrayal, Jesus bravely faced this small army. And here's what he said. Whom do you seek? 
To which they replied, Jesus, the Nazarene. And then, folks, something utterly amazing happened. Jesus said to them, I am he. And you say, well, what's amazing about that? (laughs) Well, what's amazing is that the text says in verse six, when therefore he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. That's inconceivable, isn't it? Can you imagine such a thing? As if to once again demonstrate to his enemies that he was not being overpowered by them. But that, in fact, he was who he said he was, the the son of God. He says to them, I am he, ego a me. Literally, this is the covenant name of God. And you must understand the fascinating Old Testament implications of what he said. And therefore, what happened to this maniacal mob when he said it. You will remember that in Exodus chapter 3. Moses now is going to have to go to the Israelites to help lead them out of their bondage in Egypt. And he said to God, behold, I am going to the sons of Israel and I shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. Now, they may say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. You see, friends, as you study the original language, you see that the term I am is really a reference to God as the self-existent eternal God. I am the self-existent eternal God. It's literally saying I am the one who is and who will be. That's the concept here. And this is a reference to the covenant God. And throughout all of the Old Testament, we see God disclosing himself in the revelation of Holy Writ in the various names of God. That's why it's so important to study the names of God. And so here at the hour of his captivity... He once again discloses himself to his cowardly captors. Who are you looking for? Well, we're looking for Jesus the Nazarene. I am he. And they fall. And with his spoken name went forth an irresistible blast of divine power that sent them reeling backwards, falling to the ground. An amazing scene. And I must confess, a bit comical. I have to smile when I think about it. Because I read also in John 18, verse 8, as if they were still, they had to have been still on the ground here. He, he, he asked them again. It's like they're still on their backs here. Whom, whom do you seek? <laughs> he says it again. Whom do you seek? And they, and they, they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus said, I told you that I am he. If therefore you seek me, let these go their way, that the word might be fulfilled, which he spoke of those whom thou hast given me. I lost not one. By the way, we believe that it was at that particular moment 
Peter, being emboldened with what has just happened, grabs his sword and probably as the high priest's servant is trying to get to his feet, he takes a swing at him. He would have cut off his head had he not ducked and instead he merely got his ear as Luke 22:51 tells us. Now, dear friends, I ask you, if you were there and you had experienced all of that, what would you have done? As you finally got to your feet. Well, most normal people would have run or they would have bowed down and worshipped. But this didn't happen. Something else happened. It's interesting that Jesus then tells Peter to put his sword away. And now with all of the dazed captors kind of getting to their feet... And they've seen Peter do what he's done. And Jesus now has even healed the man's ear. And then suddenly he says in verse 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? You know, folks, after all of this, especially with that statement, I think most people would say, we're out of here. We are out of here. Now think about this. A legion, the Romans knew this, all of those people knew this. A legion is 6,000 soldiers. That's a lot, a lot of soldiers. And Jesus now is saying, you know, if I want to, I can tell my father and 12 legions will be here. That's 72,000 angels. That's inconceivable. <laughs> I have to think in 2 Kings 18, you remember the story of Sennacherib with the Assyrians? They come upon the land of Judah and they utterly destroy the city of Lachish. And after Lachish, Sennacherib says, all right, let's go to Jerusalem. And he takes all of his soldiers, 185,000 of them, and they march toward Jerusalem. And Hezekiah prays and God sends one angel and kills all 185,000. What do you think 72,000 of them could do against a mob of maybe a thousand human beings with clubs and swords. You know, I have to laugh. I mean, folks, this is infinitely more powerful than sending the combined armies of the world against the Cub Scouts. But the mob is blinded by sin and they seize the Savior. By the way, this reminds me of Genesis 19. Remember the homosexual perverts there in Sodom Slave to their sins, serving the prince of darkness, they too were struck down. And they were even blinded. And yet the text says that they persisted in their lusts to the point of exhaustion. It's so tragic to see people, even to this day, wearying themselves to commit sin, never finding any rest, never finding any satisfaction. Well, I would add that the maniacal mob still exists to this day. People that are insane with anger, people that are irrational, you get them together and they, many of them hate God. Certainly most of the world hates the gospel. You see parades of homosexuals, you see parades and mobs of anarchists, uh, abortionists, pedophiles, hate mongers that hate everything that is sacred. They get together and they march for their cause. 
We see it on the television all the time. False religionists marching in their insane hatred all over the globe, vowing to destroy Israel, vowing to destroy America, chanting death to America, burning flags, burning leaders in effigy and on and on it goes, burning anything, destroying anything that is in any way linked to Christ and his church. And I would also add, and I believe this with all my heart, if it were not for the Constitution of the United States, these mobs would be carrying us away. And it's just by God's grace that that hasn't happened. Because there are people that hate us with a passion of hatred that is absolutely consistent with the mob that we see right here. And I have been the recipient of that hatred in this community, and many of you have as well. And it's mounting. It's getting worse. And it will until the Prince of Peace comes again. But we need to not be worried of this. Because like the Savior's arrest, all these things must happen to glorify Him. There is a day of reckoning coming. As one dear black preacher put it that I remember listening to years ago. He preached a sermon. Some of you may have remember hearing it. There's payday someday. Payday someday. I remember hearing it at Moody's Founders Week when I was a young man. Well, not only do we see the maniacal mob, but we see its representative in the treacherous traitor. Verses 48 and 49, it says, Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I shall kiss, he is the one, seize him. And immediately he went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. Now, folks, again, this scene is hard for me to imagine. Here we have Satan that is still reeling from his defeat in the garden. And now the enraged devil rallies his, his, his band of religious counterfeits and phonies into this, into this mob. And, and like a snake, he slithers through the darkness to attack his prey. And here the arch enemy of the Redeemer launches yet another attack against our precious Savior. And as we think of the treacherous traitor, I really see him as the poster boy of phony Christianity, of phony Christians, the quintessence of bogus believers, those who feign their allegiance to Christ, but secretly they serve themselves. You see, here is the perfect example of those who pretend to love Jesus. And they come along and attach themselves in some formal way to a church or to some group and they pretend to be godly. Oh, they learn the lingo and they even sing the hymns. Sometimes they even teach in the Sunday school and even fill the pulpits. But their ultimate motive is to satisfy some fleshly desire. There is no passion for the glory of God and the gospel. There is no heart to see people come to a saving knowledge of Christ, but rather they're in it for something that they can get. They're driven by some form of greed or maybe they just want to have friendship and they come to church as a social club as most people do these days. Maybe they want power, they want praise, they want prestige, whatever it is. But dear friends, like Judas, so many people even today, given the right set of circumstances, 
would betray Christ to the highest bidder. So here he comes, already possessed, controlled by Satan, and he betrays Jesus with a kiss. Now, a kiss in the ancient Near East and in many places we see it even to this day was a real demonstration, a real act of love and homage that one would pay to another person. And as I think about it here, Satan has absolutely no sense of propriety, no decency, no dignity whatsoever. His impiety knows no bounds. So in an act of mockery and treason, he, through Judas, kisses the one whom he despises. No doubt he also desired to wound Jesus even more by having one of his closest companions, one of the twelve, betray him in such an intimate blasphemy. There is no greater pain than the pain of being betrayed by one you love. And frankly, the antitype or the foreshadowing of this scenario can be seen in Ahithophel's betrayal of David to Solomon. By the way, you may recall that Ahithophel as well committed suicide. He was David's trusted friend and close advisor. And as we read earlier in Psalm 41, verse 9, David lamented over such treachery and he said, Even my close friend, and whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. By the way, in John's Gospel, in John chapter 13, verse 18, the greater fulfillment of this tragedy was in Judas's betrayal of the greater David, the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. And even in another psalm, in Psalm 55, we read more of David's lament which was really a, a sad harbinger of the Savior's eventual grieving. And in verse 12 of Psalm 55, we read, For it is not an enemy who reproaches me, then I could bear it, nor is it one who hates me, who has exalted himself against me, then I could hide myself from him. But it is you, a man my equal, my companion and my familiar friend, we who had sweet fellowship together. Later in verse 21, it says his speech was smoother than butter, but his heart was war. His words were softer than oil, yet they were drawn swords. So there again, we see a picture of the pathos of this treacherous betrayal. So although the wickedness of this foul apostate literally staggers the mind, we must confess that we have all... Likewise, betrayed the Savior's love more times than we would care to remember. Think about it, folks. It is easy for every saint to recall acts of, of treachery where we quickly accepted some, some bribe of temptation and thereby forsook the one that we loved. We choose some compromise over our loyalty to the Savior. Yet even in this, the Lord never has, has or I should say, has never stopped uh, 
loving us. He's never abandoned us. And indeed, we rejoice in this, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Nothing. As I meditate upon this scene and I try and feel what the Lord felt, I also have to add that I can better understand that even this aspect of his suffering was preparing the Lord to become our faithful high priest. Because as you think about it, he is the one who is able to sympathize, the text tells us, with our pain when we have been slandered, when we have been maligned, when we have been betrayed or scorned or whatever. And while we will never experience what the Lord felt, betrayal is a common experience in life. It is a suffering that is dreadful. And certainly the Lord drank it to the very dregs. And because of this, He can sympathize with our heartaches. And He can comfort us like no one else can. And so here, dear friends, the Satan man comes to betray the God-man. And yet in the midst of profound sadness, gracious to the very end, Jesus said to this son of perdition in verse 50, Friend, which by the way means comrade, companion, friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But as we gaze upon this scene of, of, of treason and sedition, illustrated by the maniacal mob, represented now by the traitorous treacher, treacher the treacherous traitor, I can never say that right, the treacherous traitor Judas. As we look at all of this, we also witness an illustration of, of disloyal discipleship, represented by what I would call the demented disciple. And ah, he is the one that mirrors me and you so many times as I look at my life and yours. Every honest Christian will see themselves here. First, let's look at the demented disciple. Demented means frenzied, uh, one that is impetuous, kind of foolish. Uh, we might use the term today, psycho, wacko. This was Peter at times. Peter, as I would say, is a ready fire aim kind of guy. He was the type of guy that had a motto that would say, Leap before you look. In verse 50, in the middle of the verse there, it said, Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached out and drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And again, they were probably getting up off, off the ground after Jesus had absolutely blown them away with the power of his name the name of the covenant God. As a footnote, it's interesting here in this text that Peter is not named, nor is he named in any of the synoptic gospels. And yet we know Peter was the man because John's gospel tells us that it was the man. And the question would arise, I wonder why Matthew, Mark, and Luke didn't mention his name. And the reason is, we believe, that they were trying to protect him. 
Because, you see, John's Gospel was written 50 years after this account, sometime, uh, we believe, in, in 80, 80 or 90. But this would have been after Peter's death, which would have been during the reign of, of Nero, sometime around AD 68. But Matthew's Gospel and Mark's Gospel were written sometime in the 50s, probably the early 50s, and Luke's Gospel sometime between 60 and 61. And so during that time, Peter was still a wanted man. And so rather than revealing his name, they kept his name out of the text. And later on, John tells us who our demented disciple was. But the text goes on to say, say that Jesus said to him, being Peter, put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. This, by the way, is a, a reference to capital punishment. We know through Genesis 9, verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Likewise, in Exodus 21 and verse 12, we read that he who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. And it's also important, just as a footnote, for you to remember that God considers capital punishment and its logical extension, war, as a deterrent to crime, as indicated in Deuteronomy 17, verse 13, where he warns, then all of the people will hear and be afraid and will not act presumptuously again. So, coming back to the text, Jesus reprimands the foolish vigilante for his crazed action, and he touches the slave's ear, he heals him, according to Acts 22, and then, as if to drive the point home, that indeed this is all a part of my plan, and that I am God, and that I, frankly, don't need your protection, dear Peter, he says in verse 53, Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and He will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? Again, it's as if to say, Peter, Peter, do you really think that your puny little show of aggression is necessary? Peter, like all of us at times, I believe, failed to realize what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, that the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. You see, folks, this is this is a spiritual battle and it requires spiritual weaponry. And as we look at the word of God, especially in Ephesians six, we see that the divine weaponry that we have is the word of God and prayer, the sword, which is the, the, the word of God, the sword of the spirit and prayer. Obviously, Peter and the others did not grasp the significance of being spiritually armed. Had they grasped that, they would have been prepared. They would have heeded the Lord's earlier commands when he told them, I want you to remain here. I want you to watch. I want you to be vigilant. But I pray, I want you to pray that you may not enter into temptation. Luke twenty-two forty, And also in verse 41 of Matthew 26, keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Moreover, we must understand that we are citizens, dear friends, of another kingdom. This world is not our home. That's why we don't fight holy wars. That's why we don't go march on abortion clinics and march on this and march on all of those types of things. That is not the divine mandate. 
We're to go into the world and make disciples of all men. We need to preach the gospel. There needs to be a transformation of the heart, not a transformation of attitude or policy or whatever. We don't convert people by politics, nor do we convert them by the power of the sword. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything to stand firm. And he goes on to tell us that we need to gird our loins with truth. We need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. We need to shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. We are to take up the shield of faith and put on the helmet of salvation. And we are to take the word of the spirit, which is the, I mean, the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And then with all prayer and petition, he tells us to pray at all times in the spirit. That's how you fight. So he's saying, Peter, put your sword away before you kill someone and forfeit your own life as punishment and instead unsheath this divinely powerful sword, which is the word of God, and pray for supernatural wisdom and discernment so that you can wield the supernatural sword effectively for the glory of God. And again, he's saying, you know, hey, I could I could instantly annihilate all of these people. So, Peter, don't act so crazy here. And also, he says in verse 54, how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that it must happen this way? You see, friends, again, here the Lord reminds us that all of these things have been or had been ordained by the triune Godhead in eternity past. This wasn't catching Jesus by surprise. Everything Jesus is now doing is in perfect fulfillment to God's sovereign plan. In fact, the inspired Apostle Peter would later say in Acts 2, verse 23, that Jesus Christ was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. And certainly Isaiah the prophet predicted that he would be despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, despised, and that he would bear our griefs, carry our sorrows. He would be one stricken by God and afflicted. He would be pierced through for our transgressions, that he would be crushed for our iniquities, that the chastening for our well-being would fall upon him, and by his scourging we would be healed. In Isaiah 53, verse 10, we read, But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as a guilt offering. And in verse 11, he says, My servant will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Folks, we can even look in Revelation chapter 13 and verse 8, where it is stated very clearly that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. In other words, before creation, God's eternal elective purposes in salvation were established and nothing can stop them. So Jesus says, how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled? It's got to happen this way. Peter, don't you understand this? Put your sword away. What a senseless act. But Peter was a perfect representative of all of us who try to take things into our own hand when things don't go our way. This leads us to 
the final group that Peter represents, those all of us, disloyal disciples, I call them, and I call us. We are the group that have been transformed by the truth of the gospel, but my, how many times we run and we flee. Verse 55, at that time Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? In other words, you cowards, you, you bring a small army to arrest someone who is completely innocent? He says, every day I used to sit in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. In other words, you had many opportunities. In fact, you even tried and you failed. But now you come? Do you think, you maniacal mob, do you think that just perhaps all of this is occurring on my timetable, not yours? And of course, common sense and logic never come into play with an insane group of people consumed with self-will and hatred, blinded by Satan. And in verse 56, he says, But all this has taken place, that the Scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled. And then here's the sad statement. Then all the disciples left him and fled. How sad. But how typical. How typical of all of us. Folks, just as the wolves are phony, the sheep are feeble. And therefore, it's easy for us to somehow compromise and in fear acquiesce to the demands of men rather than remaining loyal to the Savior. How easy it is for, for our loyalty to wither in the face of oppression and adversity. I think about our dear brothers there in the garden that night. Wouldn't it be fun to see them someday and to meet them? But as I look at them, I see two defective marks in their character that can be found in each of us. And I close with these thoughts. First of all, they walked in the flesh, not in the spirit. They were overconfident in themselves. That's why Jesus said earlier, oh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, guys, you may have good intentions, but, but it's not so much your attitude is the, that's the issue here. It's your flesh. You're not going to be able to act upon what you believe to be true. You need supernatural help. That's why I want you to pray. That's why I want you to walk in the spirit, which means to surrender to the Spirit of God as He is revealed in His Word every moment of your life. Now think of the personal parallel here. Think how many times we as believers suddenly find ourselves in a situation that we had never anticipated. And like Peter and the boys, we kind of think something like this. You know what? Suddenly things are happening that I don't like. These are things that I have not planned on. And how do we respond? Many times we respond not in a spirit-controlled strength, but rather we react in the flesh. In fact, John MacArthur has an excellent quote on this, on this behalf. I put it in your bulletin. He says, the believer who fails to saturate himself in God's word and to have fellowship in God's presence becomes a captive of circumstances. His thinking is based on the emotions of the moment and his actions are based on the impulses of the moment, end quote. 
And here's why. Because we have been overconfident in ourselves. Because we've really not had a secret devotion to God. We really do not have a disciplined prayer life. There is no habitual feeding on the Word of God so that the Spirit of God can give us insight and discernment when things come up that we don't expect. And so, because we're confident in ourselves, we become spiritually vulnerable and spiritually weak. We're not walking in the Spirit. And then when things happen, we are vulnerable and unprepared and ill-equipped. And secondly, what I see in them as well as us is that we end up being ruled by our emotions rather than by wisdom. See, here's how it works. The unexpected trial hits us and suddenly we're filled with hurt. Maybe we're confused. Maybe we're afraid. Maybe we're angry. Maybe we're anxious. And like Peter, we ready, fire, aim. And we react in emotion. We take matters into our own hands. We seize the sword and we start swinging. And ears start flying off and heads start falling. People get hurt. And somehow in our minds it's as if we're saying, well, I've got to do something here because this isn't the way that I planned it. What's happening here is not consistent with my agenda for my life. God, you must be indifferent out there. You must not be in control. God, somehow, maybe you're helpless. Maybe you're not even being fair to me. But thank you, I'll take matters into my own hands. And rather than relaxing in His sovereign care, relaxing in His perfect timing, we seek relief over blessing. And we let our emotions rule us. Dear friends, I trust that all of us this morning will rejoice again as we reflect upon our precious Savior who willingly faced the enemy of our souls, who conquered sin and Satan and death on our behalf, who never allowed His emotions to rule Him, but instead was ruled by one thing, and that was the will of the Father. May we also learn as we think about this text the importance of walking in the Spirit and being controlled, therefore, by a sound mind, not by our fickle emotions that merely react to circumstances. Let's pray together. Father, we are humbled when we think of these glorious truths. We again praise You for Your mercy and Your grace. Lord Jesus, we praise You for paying the penalty for our sins. And even as we get a little better glimpse of what You went through, we are absolutely staggered with humility that You would love us in such a way. May we live in such a way as to reflect our praise and our worship of You. For it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit olivetreeresources.org.